Now, this morning, I want to give a, just a child warning, a parental warning. Um, I'm going to just very, very briefly, uh, during uh, my sermon this morning, um, uh, mention a particular uh, sexual act. And so, if you're here with a child, um, you may want to block their ears. I'll give you a little signal when I'm about to do that. Um, or you may wish to um, ask your child to vacate. I just... Um, um, or it would be a great learning opportunity for your child memories to uh, follow that through. And Brenda's got her fingers in her ears already. <laughs> Having said that, I know I've now got everybody's attention. <laughs> what is he going to say? What sexual act might that be? All right. Well, today we're going to look at um, Genesis chapter 18 and 19. We're uh, doing a series, a deeper series on the life of a wonderful man by the name of Abraham. And we've only got a couple more sessions to go. And we have actually, in today's sermon, we've probably got two or three sermon series, and I'm condensing it down into about a 25, 30-minute message. So here we go. Uh, Genesis 18 and 19 is one of the most um, difficult passages um, in the Bible. And uh, this portion of Scripture, probably more than any other, has um, alienated people from, from God. Uh, more than any other uh, portion of, of Scripture because of its association uh, with homosexuality and because of um, the wiping out of um, the entire cities of Sodom and uh, Gomorrah. And then this PowerPoint slide, I found the, the most kind of horrible-looking one I could find. There's um, fire and brimstone. Oh, my gosh, that is not very good, is it? Um, Use your imagination. For those of us who are into, uh, into uh, art and um, um, abstract art, that is a picture of uh, Sodom, and that's fire and brimstone raining down from God in heaven. And this, uh, this figure here on, uh, on this side here is uh, Lot's wife, who's been turned into a pillow of salt. My goodness me, it's fairly, um, fairly wild kind of stuff, isn't it? Um, there's a great, um, when uh, kids were asked to uh, write little kind of sayings about what they learned in Sunday school, was one child wrote that uh, Lot's wife was a pillar of salt by day, but a ball of fire by night. <laughs> Who knows? Only Lot knows that. All right. But before we get to the uh, challenging stuff... Um, Let's begin with something that's relatively palatable and easy. And uh, the first thing I want to draw out from, uh, from Genesis 18 is, um, is around hospitality. Um, Jews uh, view hospitality as the, um, the primary characteristic of Abraham's life. If you like, he's their patron saint of hospitality. And uh, this perspective of Abraham comes from the few, f- first few verses that appear in Genesis 18, which describe an encounter that Abraham has with God and, um, and three visitors that come knocking on his, on his uh, tent door. Uh, and those three strangers actually happen to or turn out to be um, angels. So this is Genesis uh, chapter 18, verses 1 through to 5. It says, The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre. Got to be careful how you pronounce that. And while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent, in, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day, and Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. 
And when he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, if I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Let a little water be brought, and then you may all wash your feet and rest under his tree. And as the story goes on, Abraham cooked up a meal for uh, these three guests. Now, we don't have time to look at all the nuances of the, the Hebrew language that are, that are in this portion of Scripture, but believe me when I tell you, you'd buy a used car from me, wouldn't you? Yeah. Okay, so believe me when I tell you that Jewish uh, tradition um, interprets this text in uh, quite a unique way. And it suggests that God has, uh, has come to meet with Abraham and they are in this really deep um, conversation. And as they are talking, three strangers, three visitors arrive unannounced. And what happens next is really strange, is that Abraham interrupts his meeting with God. He puts God on hold and he leaves God to attend to the needs of these um, three strangers. So there were no takeaways or, uh, you know, uh, holiday inns back in, in, in those days. And so people were reliant on the generosity and the kindness of people they met on their journey. And here is Abraham who's faced with this choice uh, between having a face-to-face encounter with the living God and the other option of offering hospitality to three strangers. Abraham chooses hospitality. Now, for us, that kind of sounds um, almost sacrilegious, doesn't it? Got a choice to wait on tables or serve and minister to God and be spoken to by God, and he opts for um, the, the the, the three strangers. Now, think about this for a moment. Who would you give your time to? The God who has come in person to pay you a visit, or would you give your attention to passers-by who are looking for a free meal? Now, if you're anything like me, I would opt for God. I kind of like the idea of having a face-to-face encounter with God. That kind of that excites me. And I'm, I love hospitality. I love cooking and preparing meals for people. But boy, would I love to engage with God where God comes and sits with me face to face. But that's not Abraham's take on things. And what this incident does is uh, teaches us something quite profound. And this is kind of um, strong, strongly immersed um, in, in Jewish tradition and thinking. That there is only one God, one thing in the universe made in God's image and capable of bearing God's likeness, and that is whom? Us, human beings. And the reason that Jews value um, this story so highly is that Abraham is the first person to understand that the authenticity of a person's faith is to see the trace of God in the face of a stranger. It's really quite profound. You see, it was easy for Abraham to see God when God appeared to him in person. 
But what is difficult to see is when God comes to us in the form of a stranger, particularly when the stranger is nothing like us. And so from a Jewish perspective, Abraham's greatness was knowing that, uh, that, he, that we honour God by honouring God's image found in the other. Do you get that? Do you really get that? So when somebody who is a stranger, who is very different to you, comes, then the Abrahamic mindset is to see that person through the lens of someone who is made in the image and the likeness of God. And Abraham's example became the basis of one of the foundational principles of Judaism. And it's this statement that hospitality is greater than receiving the divine presence. Because in the act of hospitality, you are actually encountering and engaging the divine presence. I hope you ponder this and think it through with some, some, um, some depth because it is actually incredibly profound. Now, that was the easy bit. You probably didn't hear anything I said because you want to hear about the sex bit, don't you? So the next point is, um, is about homosexuality. Sodom, along with its uh, neighbour, neighbour, neighbour Gomorrah, have been synonymous with, with, with homosexuality. And the long-held uh, traditional view of the church is that God's judgment was exacted upon these two cities because of homosexuality, same-sex um, 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 intercourse. Now, for those of you who don't know the story, here's a, a very brief overview. The three angels that had been uh, with Abraham uh, go to uh, Sodom, and uh, they are welcomed and hosted by, by Abraham's nephew, uh, Lot. And while these three uh, angels, these three visitors, are with, um, with Lot, the men of the city, it tells us, the men of the city come to Lot's door, and they want Lot to um, give uh, these three visitors over to them so that they can um, have sex with them. Now, Lot is uh, very uh, appalled by this, and so his response is to offer his two virgin daughters in place of the three male visitors. Now, get your head around that. We don't have time to go into that this morning. Suffice to say, the, the poor view of women in those days. Let's just say that. Okay? So, something going on here in this story. Um, anyway, um, Lot kind of closes the door and uh, the three angels actually strike the men that have gathered um, around to, uh, to rape them. Uh, the three angels strike the, um, the, the, the men blind and then judgment falls on Sodom. 
fire and brimstone. That's kind of wild stuff, isn't it? Now, for centuries, um, most Christians, and can I say with, with sadness, most Christians, including myself, have believed and have taught that Sodom was destroyed because of same-sex relationships. And that is plainly not true. That is not true. Even conservative scholars today are pushing closer and closer and closer to a more true interpretation of what was taking place here uh, in, in, in Sodom. Let me explain. And this is where the child warning comes in. So, parents, this is up to you. You don't... Please don't come to me afterwards and, and, uh, and complain. Because this is Bible stuff, all right? And sometimes the Bible, we sanitize the Bible. Um, but boy, is it interesting stuff, fascinating stuff. In the ancient world, um, one of the cultural practices of the day was when an army defeated their enemy in battle they would shame them through anal penetration. That's quite disturbing, but that was the way the world was in those days. It was the way that the winner of a battle would enforce their control and domination over the loser. And the victorious army would underscore their triumph by humiliating their foe. If we want to be faithful to Scripture, we cannot compare the ancient practice of shame, humiliation and sexual violence that we see in Genesis 19 with a contemporary consenting same-sex relationship. They are not on the same page. And if you want to be faithful to Scripture, you cannot use Sodom and Gomorrah as a tool, as a weapon to beat gay people over the head with. Now, you may or we may be able to take other Scriptures and mount an argument against homosexuality, but we can't legitimately use this one. And so if you're like me, and you've used uh, this story to mount a case against um, same-sex relationships, can I encourage you to go before God like I have done and repent and say, I'm really sorry, God, I was operating out of... I was just repeating, regurgitating what I was told, and I'm really sorry that I, I didn't know the, the, the truth of your word, and I'm sorry... I'm sorry that I've used your word as a weapon and bent it to suit my preference rather than the truth of your word. Now, next year, we're going to uh, do a series on sexual ethics and we're going to spend um, one of our Sunday seminar series, we're going to unpack this whole thing of, of sexuality because it's such an important issue, and we need to get our heads around it, and we'll look at it in more depth. So if, if Sodom 
was judged by God and the issue wasn't same-sex relationships, what was the cause of Sodom's judgment? Now, this is where it should get a little bit uncomfortable for us all, okay? So in Genesis 18, 20 to 21, it says, So the Lord told Abraham, I have heard a great outcry. Everyone say outcry. I've heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. I'm going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. Now, there's a Jewish Hebrew uh, scholar by the name of Robert Alters says that this word outcry is actually the key to understanding this little portion of Scripture. And he says that it, it, it is the cry of the oppressed, the victims of cruelty violence and injustice. And there is a cry that is that has been heard in heaven and it's got God's attention. And God is going to investigate to see what the issue is. Now in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 49 to 50, it actually tells us why Sodom experienced the judgment of God. Sodom's sins were arrogance and pride. Ooh, I might be guilty of that one. Um, Overfed. Gluttony. I'm definitely guilty of that one. Unconcerned. Lacking empathy. Failure to help the poor and needy. This is what it says. This, now, this was the sin of your sister Sodom. She and her daughters were arrogant, overfed, and unconcerned. They did not help the poor and needy. They were haughty and did detestable things before me. Therefore, I did away with them as you have seen. How convenient that for centuries the church have used the Sodom story to condemn a small group of people in our community. How convenient. Because while we were pointing the finger at them, we in our pride and our arrogance and our gluttony and our unconcern and, and, and uh, lack of empathy uh, and failure to help the poor and needy, we were off the hook. But not anymore because we've just heard the truth. As you can tell, I'm a little bit passionate about this. See, these were the things which capture God's attention, and they still do. I just wonder if we were to do an audit of the Christian church, where would we sit in relation to these issues? of arrogance and pride, of gluttony, of lacking empathy, and failing to help the poor and the needy. I'm just throwing it out there for you to have a think through. Now, this is why I believe um, God... Judgment is really a difficult issue to come to terms with. But I believe that God's judgment... It's God's loving response to the exploitation of the vulnerable by the strong 
and the wealthy, for those who hold power. And it's the cries of those who are victimised by the uncaring powerful that moves God toward justice. And a God who fails to judge is not acting mercifully towards the poor and the marginalised. A God without judgment is actually a God without mercy. Again, this is a series, but it's worthwhile pondering. Now, the judgment of Sodom was preceded in Genesis 18 with a fascinating interaction that takes place between Abraham and God. And I'm going to read this out to you. In beginning verse 17, it said, Should I hide my plan from Abraham? The Lord asked. So the Lord told Abraham, I have heard a great outcry from Sodom and Gomorrah because their sin is so flagrant. I am going down to see if their actions are as wicked as I have heard. If not, I want to know. The other man turned and headed towards Sodom. That's the three visitors. But the Lord remained with Abraham. And Abraham approached him and said, Will you sweep away both the righteous and the wicked? Suppose you find 50 righteous people living there in the city. Will you still sweep it away and not spare it for their sakes? Surely you wouldn't do such a thing, destroying the righteous along with the wicked. Why would you be treating the righteous and the wicked exactly the same? Surely you wouldn't do that. Should not the judge of all the earth do what is right? And the Lord replied, If I find 50 righteous people in Sodom, I will spare the entire city for their sake. Then Abraham spoke again. Since I've begun, let me speak further to my Lord, even though I am but dust and ashes. Suppose there are only 45 righteous people rather than 50. Will you destroy the whole city for lack of five? And the Lord said, I will not destroy it if I find 45 righteous people there. In this conversation, um, this prayer that takes place between um, God and Abraham, is Abraham interceding for Sodom in a way which kind of resembles um, two people in the market pa- marketplace kind of bartering, you know? How about, how about, how about 50? How about 45? How about, how about 40? Well, what Abraham is doing is taking on the role of a priest. Now, a priest is an intermediary, someone who stands as a bridge between God and humanity. And in verse 23, it says that Abraham approached God. And in the, in, the, in the original Hebrew language, it's like he's a defense lawyer who's approaching the bench and he's pleading the case of the accused. And Abraham is representing the city of Sodom. This bunch of people who are, what, what did we say? They're arrogant and proud. They're overfed, they're unconcerned and they are failing to help um, the poor and the needy. And here is Abraham standing in their defence and he's arguing and pleading their case and asking God if he would be merciful. And this is the great thing. 
is that we can see from, from Abraham's pleading that he is, he is resistant to the idea of judgment. Abraham wants God to show mercy. Abraham is not excusing away the sin of Sodom. He's not denying um, uh, the, 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 the sin of the people, but he's appealing to God the judge to be lenient. Now, what is also interesting in this story is that not only is Abraham resistant to the idea of judgment, so is God. See, as the dialogue between Abraham and and God unfolds, at the very least, if ten righteous people can be found, then God would withhold justice. God doesn't want to judge Sodom. There is something within, there is a reluctance within God to to, um, smite people and rain down fire and brimstone from heaven. You see, because judgment is not God's default posture. It wasn't Abraham's default posture. And can I say, any Christian, like this poor child here, who somehow takes delight in God pouring out wrath and anger, misses the heart of what it means to have Abraham as your father of faith. It actually is such a tragedy because God is not like that. Now, what I'm about to say is so incredibly important. You see, in the Bible, we we not only find um, individual uh, responsibility. See, we live in a Western society which places all of the responsibility on the individual. And that's true. The Bible does. Talk about um, um, personal or individual responsibility. But the theme of the Bible is corporate responsibility. In fact, most of the world outside of the West operates with this mindset of corporate responsibility. And that is that the wrongs of the people we are in solidarity with, the people that we are in relationship with, the people that are like us, or that we are part of. That those wrongs are actually assigned to us, even if we have not personally committed the wrong ourselves. Now, I want to give you an example. In Joshua 7, we find a man by the name of Achan, and it says that a man named Achan had stole some of these dedicated things. So the Lord was angry with thee, Israelites, who stole? Who was God angry with? Israelites. You see, there is this, not this individual um, responsibility, but corporate responsibility. You see, Achan was in solidarity with Israel. If I can just make one social comment This thing about this thing about the wrongs of those 
of whom we are part of being attributed to us. Can I just say this? Children on Manus Island and Nauru. I'll leave it at that. In his pleading for the city of Sodom, what Adam is asking, sorry, what Abraham is asking is this incredible question is if the sins of others can be accounted to us, could the principle work in reverse? Could the righteousness of someone that I'm in relationship with be accounted to me? It's not just the wrongs of those we're in solidarity with that are assigned to us. But Abraham gets the idea that the righteousness of those that we're in solidarity that we're in solidarity with can also be assigned to us and what abraham is doing here is working through a deeply spiritual concept and that is someone's righteousness can erase the unrighteousness of others What Abraham is proposing is the possibility that our record of sin is not all that we have to rely upon when we stand before God. That the innocence of one person can forgive the guilt of the many. That the obedience of one person can override the disobedience of many. That the life of one person can overcome the death of many. And Abraham is asking, how far can the righteousness of the few stretch? And he begins with 50. Can 50 people, and I want you to respond, can 50 50 righteous people avert God's judgment? Can 45 righteous people Avert God's judgment. Can 40 righteous people avert God's judgment? Can 35, this is, this, this is what happens in, in, in Genesis 18. Can 35 righteous people avert the judgment of God? Can 30 righteous people avert the judgment of God? Can 25 righteous people avert the judgment of God? I'd like a bit more passionate response. (laughs) Where was I up to? 25. Do you you believe it, actually? 25? Can the righteousness of 20 avert God's judgment? What about... Can the righteousness of 15 people avert God's judgment? Okay, we're getting into Abraham territory now. Can the righteousness of 10 people avert the judgment of God? This is where Abraham stopped. Dare we go beyond 10? 
Could we say the righteousness of nine people could avert the judgment of God? Not very confident. (laughs) What about eight? Can the righteousness of eight people avert the judgment of God? You have to be saying yes or otherwise you're doomed, you know? (laughs) Let's drop it to five. Can the righteousness of five people avert? What about four? What about three? What about two? Can the righteousness of one person... Can the righteousness of one person avert the judgment of God? And what's that person's name? Gosh. One righteous man. His name is Jesus. And his righteousness averted the judgment of God that was directed towards each and every one of us. That, folks, is called the gospel. The climax Abraham failed to reach was the righteousness of one person could cover the unrighteousness of many. But Abraham's eyes were open to the principle of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that the unrighteous many are saved by the righteous one. He saw the gospel. He got an inkling of the good news that would come when a day when the righteousness of a few would cover the unrighteousness of the many. And that's why Abraham is so important. And so his story is so profound and so great because he saw something 2,000 years ahead of time and we see something that happened 2,000 years before I go. 1 Peter 3.18 says, For Christ suffered for sins, the righteous, the righteous one, for the unrighteous many, to bring us to God. I'm excited 